All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. And today we're going to be t- talking about the second section of Leviticus. And actually, um, I miscalculated when I said last week that Caleb would be teaching the Day of Atonement next week, and I'm actually getting to teach it today. So that's, I'm exci- I was excited when I uh, discovered that at the beginning of the week. I looked back at how the book was divided, and um, uh, so... Yes, we'll get into the central point of Leviticus today, which I'm really excited about. And let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Um, Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship together. Um, I pray that you would use this time to enrich our minds, that it would encourage our hearts, that you would give us a deeper appreciation of Leviticus and I pray that you would use me to, to speak what your word says and not more. Um, and I pray that, um, uh, yeah, that you would be glorified in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and start off this morning where we left off last week, which was with the story of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10 of Leviticus. <clears throat> and what we're going to see is that this really sets up the, the narrative context. It, this sets up the... the um, uh, the justification for the next section, which is uh, the, the, the section on clean and unclean laws, the laws that govern what is clean and what is unclean. And we're going to see why this section leads to that, and then why the Day of Atonement um, is a great kind of a capstone, it's a great conclusion to this section on what is clean and what is unclean and how to be cleansed. So let's go ahead and start with chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10 in Leviticus. If you don't have your notes, the notes are in the back, and I've made sure I printed plenty today. Um, so if you have, if there's extras, take one and give it to a friend. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Let's keep reading. And Moses, held, and Moses called Mishael and Elsaphan, the sons of Uziel, this uncle, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in, in their coats out of the camp, and as Moses had said, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole, council, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning of the Lord that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses." So here we have this tragic story of, of Nadab and Abihu, and the shocking thing about it is that if you look back and just look back briefly at chapter 8 of Leviticus, you see that this is the, this is the, the scene that kind of sets the consecration of Aaron and his sons after they received um, instructions on what their duties were going to be uh, during the sacrifices that we talked about last week. So you have the consecration in chapter 8, and then, verse, and then chapter 9 is really where um, that whole section on sacrifices concludes with, with the Lord accepting Aaron's offering. If you look back at uh, verse 22, 
of chapter 9. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. This is after he went through the rituals. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So Nadab and Abihu got to see what happens when you offer sacrifices the right way. And then they go in in chapter 10, and they offer um, a sacrifice or attempt to enter into God's presence the wrong way. And God, instead of consuming the sacrifice that he consumed in chapter 9, he consumes them with a fire. And notice this theme here, that God is actually glorified through the judgment of Nadab and Abihu. Look at, chap- look at verse 3. Then Moses said, in chapter 10, then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be made holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Why did, why did Yahweh consume Nadab and Abihu? It's for his own glory. It's for his own glory. It's to demonstrate his holiness to, to um, Israel, to the priests, that you don't just get to come and approach God in any way that you desire. Now, now turn briefly to uh, Leviticus 16, and we're gonna kinda sh- I'm going to show you how this next section from a chapters 11 um, to 16, including chapter 10, really, is kind of bookended by this story of Nadab and Abihu. Look at uh, Leviticus 16, first few verses there. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. And he gives some instructions there. So he, he revisits the story of Nadab and Abihu to introduce chapter 16. Um, uh, for this reason, um, because of the immediate kind of switch from the story um, to, from that story to the Day of Atonement in, in chapter 16, I think it'd be um, right for us to see that immediately following the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, God introduces the instructions on how to actually enter into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. So this is like a very close um, association, Nadab and Abihu, Day of Atonement. And then those, the story of Nadab and Abihu and the Day of Atonement, um, when he reintroduces the story, kind of serve as this, these bookends. And then verses, chapters 11 through 15, the laws on the clean and the unclean, that's like the, that's what fills the middle. So it's all one section, book ended by Nadab and Abihu. You guys following me there? That means it's all related. So the reason why God gives instructions on what is clean and unclean and ends it with the Day of Atonement is because of the story of Nadab and Abihu, at least the contextual reason. Does that make sense? There are more things that are going on here, but this story serves as a perfect opportunity for God to teach them a lesson on what is clean and unclean. You guys with me? Back to chapter 10, one more thing, just to kind of prove this point a little further. Um, Look at verse 10, look at verse 8 in chapter 10. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. 
you are to distinguish between, uh, between the holy and the common, and between the what? The unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So, so God uses the story to say, okay, this is, what you, this is what you need to distinguish between, okay? This is what, um, <clears throat> what it means to be clean and unclean. What were Nadab and Abihu's sins um, in the text? There's some clues here um, beyond just that they tried to approach God in the wrong way. That's the big overarching theme there. It's a big sin. Notice his instruction there in verse 8 uh, or in verse 9, drink no wine or strong drink. I think from, from that we can uh, discern or um, kind of get from that, that that Nadab and Abihu were probably drunk. Maybe they were drunk going into God's presence. That's why, that's, that would make sense of that, that quick instruction there. Don't do what they did. Don't drink strong drink and wine um, to make yourself drunk when you go into the tent of meeting. That's probably one of the things that led to them to to, to, to worship or attempt to worship in the way that they did. So they went in drunk in a stupor, not realizing what they were doing. Um, look, at cha- look at verse 1 in chapter 10. It says, Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. That word unauthorized fire, that term unauthorized fire, could be just talking about they did it in a way that God didn't instruct them, which is true. Um, some scholars suggest that they took the fire from the wrong place, and so they weren't offering fire in the right way. And the idea that they took the censer and put incense in it, um, the, the other instance of that happening actually takes place in the Day of Atonement when Aaron enters where? The Holy of Holies. So not only did Nadab and Abihu attempt to go into the tent of meeting, they were attempting probably, probably very likely attempting to go further than the holy place into the holy of holies and trying to, trying to do it their own way, taking fire from the wrong place and not following the instructions that God gives later in, in chapter 16. God tells Aaron in chapter 16, you don't go to the whole holy of holies any time. I think he's contrasting that with Nadab and Abihu going, trying to go into the holy of holies any time they please. And... So they attempted to go before the face of God in the Holy of Holies, I think. I think that's a good um, way to take this. Drunk, taking fire from the wrong place. And then they die, which means now, now what's inside the tabernacle? Dead bodies. Dead bodies. If we, if we zoom back out, and we're going to go back over this again, and we're reviewing these, these images and reviewing this, um, the narrative from Genesis to Genesis to. Uh, to Exodus, to Leviticus, um, because I, we really want to catch what's going on in the tabernacle. Um, if the Holy of Holies is a microcosm or a small representative of the Garden of Eden, and we know that the Garden of Eden is the place of life, then what does not, des- what does not belong in the Garden of Eden? Death. What does not belong in the Holy of Holies? Death. And so to teach Israel Further, um, God goes in uh, to instructions on what is clean and unclean. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the understanding, about understanding the clean and unclean laws. Understanding the, cl- uh, the clean and unclean laws. So one of the categories, or the two categories that you can place, um, I think generally, 
um, most of the laws, or all of the laws, really, in the unclean and clean categories are related to the, the categories of life and death. So that which is clean is that which is related to life. That which is unclean is that which is related to death. You guys see an image there um, on your notes, right, underneath life and death? He says um, in, in chapter 10 that we're going to distinguish between what is holy and what is common, or what is holy and what is profane, okay? So that's the two big headings there. Things that are holy, okay? What would be things that are common or profane? Let's start with, the, maybe this is an easier one. What are things that we would consider holy or what are, that are considered holy in Leviticus thus far? Okay, pure animals, sanctified animals, good, sanctified animals, Aaron's clothes, good, they're described as holy. What's Aaron? The high priest, he's over the order of the Levites who are priests, the priests are holy, right, so these, they would fall in these, this holy category. Um, Everything that's not sanctified to the Lord, set apart to, to the Lord. So animals that were set apart for sacrifice, they would be holy. But everything that's not, not set apart to the Lord, so like that's that word holy, right? Sanctify, holy, those are all the same words. Set apart, those are all the same words. Everything that's not that would then fall into this big category of common or profane. And then he says, so you're going to distinguish between what is common and what is holy, but then you're also going to distinguish between within that common category, what is clean and what is unclean, okay? So, so we need to realize that, that there's those distinctions. There's holy, and then there's clean and unclean, and the clean is not equal holy, okay? So if you look at that, um, the picture there, so you have what is holy, and then if something is profaned, it becomes common. Common, you have things that are clean and unclean. If you sanctify something that is clean, which means you set it apart for, for, for holy use, like a sacrificial animal, then it becomes holy. It moves into that next category. Something that's unclean would need to be cleansed in order to become clean and enter into that category. But something that's unclean can't just go from unclean into holy. Does that make sense? It has to go through this movement towards holiness. So that's that picture there. Um, so clean and unclean, they can be easily categorized in terms of life and death. Okay, so things that are related to death, things that had even smacked of death, those would be unclean things. And then uh, things that represented life would be clean. Um, so like dead bodies, obviously unclean. Leprosy, diseases, that, that, um, that those things would put you in the realm of death. Um, leprosy was a, it was a, it was a flesh-eating disease, right? So diseases like, like that um, were, would put you into the realm of death. Um, this is an interesting one. Who we got in the room? Okay, bodily secretions. We read that. Those are kind of a, those are kind of weird ones. Um, those things represent those things are unclean. Not, yeah, because they 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 cause the loss of life fluid. It's kind of a weird way of saying that, but that's I think that's an easy that's a kind of an easy way to think about that. They're not bad. It's natural, but it causes a life loss of life fluid. Okay, so that would be unclean until you're cleansed of that. In regards to animals, I, I, and this is an interesting one, as you read the list of animals, you're like, why are, why are these categories here? Um, there's a good quote here from Morales, from the book, um, Who Shall Send the Mountain of the Lord? 
He says, many of the unclean animals are associated with death in some fashion. So if you go through and you look at all the animals, they're associated with death in some fashion, whether in being carnivorous predators or scavengers, living in caves. Um, Caves were uh, like tombs, viewed as tombs. Or like pigs, being associated with underworld deities and pagan worship. Along these lines, creatures that demonstrate some abnormality within their class, like fish without scales, are considered further from the wholeness of an ordered cosmos in, in terms of life. And, and, and so think not in terms of um, when God made fish without scales, he made a mistake. So it wasn't, wasn't properly ordered and things like that. But it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a category that, that, that is um, it's misplaced. It seems misplaced, metaphorically speaking. Therefore, it'd be unclean. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so um, within the sac- let's talk within the sacrifices. We're going to get more to holiness next, next week. Um, Caleb's going to cover holiness because... Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but that's a good question, so let's touch, it, touch on it right now. So within sacrifices, for instance, um, a clean animal, so the sacrifice had to be a clean animal, first of all, right? You couldn't go get a pig and sacrifice that to the Lord. That would desecrate the temple or the tabernacle. Um, so you would go get a clean animal, and then you would bring it to the priest, and when you, in that presentation, right, that, the one that we talked about, um, that's where it would be, it would go from being clean to being sanctified unto the Lord. The, and then the priest would, or then you would kill it, and then it would be offered to the Lord. That offering to the Lord, that um, setting apart for the Lord's purposes in, the, in the, the, the cultist, remember that word last week, that worship ceremony, that worship ritual, that's what made it holy. So in the flock, not holy, but clean, set apart for the tabernacle use, now it's holy, Right? So, and we're going to talk more about the categories of Israel here, too. Yes, question? No. So they, they, profaned, the, they profaned the tabernacle and made it unclean. Therefore, God kills them. So they wouldn't have, so they, they were holy by by. They were holy by being in the priesthood, by way of being in the priesthood. Yeah, but then they profaned themselves by entering into the, entering into the tabernacle the wrong way. They'd have to be cleansed in order to do the sanctified work. Yes, so you have the priests doing, like, they cleanse themselves, they put on holy garments before they go and do the work that's done in the Day of Atonement. So they would have to, it's not a picture of, so we're going to talk about the difference between being clean and unclean and, and sin in a second. There's a, different, there's a distinction there that's important. So that's a good question that leads us to the next ca- uh, a category coming in a little bit. So you guys with me there? So these things that represent death, unclean, things that represent life, clean. Um, okay, so that's, that covers that category. Let's go to the next point of, about the, um, the, the clean and unclean laws. And it has to do with God's holiness and sin's pollution. So this actually gets at your question. Uh, the idea behind being clean and unclean or the clean and unclean laws was not that everything that was unclean was necessarily sinful. 
Um, because if things were unclean were sinful, then uh, natural relations between a husband and a, and, a, and a wife would be sinful. That's not true, right? Um, a woman's time of the month would be sinful. That's not true. Um, and so, or accidentally touching a, a dead animal or having to touch a dead animal or a dead person in order to take them out of your house, in order to bury them, that would be sinful, but that's not, those, those aren't sins, right? Um, but there is a connection between um, sin and uncleanness. And it's kind of a metaphorical connection. Um, and it has to do with God's holiness and sin's pollution of the world. So the fact that there are unclean things in the world is just a reminder that, that um, these are the effects of uh, living in a fallen world. There's death, there's unwholeness, there's, um, there's loss of, um, of life, there's diseases, there's all these different things. Um, it's, a, it's a metaphorical reminder that, there is a, that we live in a sin-polluted world and that sin's pollution has no business being in God's presence because God is holy. So what is unclean cannot enter into God's presence because God's holy, and what is unclean is a reminder of sin's pollution there. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not in terms of what is unclean, what is, what is sinful, but it has a picture of what's polluted by sin. Um, so, so, the, so although in, in some sense, because we don't love the, Lord, the, the love, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we are always kind of sinning. Every breath, we're falling short of the glory of God. Does that make sense? In one sense. Um, and so the priest was not expected to be sinless, but they were expected to be clean and sanctified as they went into um, the holy place. And so we have to make sure that we're um, parsing that out correctly, I think. So, so God's holiness and sin's pollution. Does that make sense? You guys with me there? So the lesson here is that sin's pollution cannot draw near to God because he is holy, the source of life and wholeness. So therefore, symbols of death and unwholeness cannot be um, in God's presence. Um, Go to Leviticus 20, verses 23 to 26. We're going to talk about Israel and the nations. And this really gives us the the function of the clean and unclean laws, especially as it pertains to the animals and what you can and can't eat. Leviticus 20, verse 23 And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples or the nations. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So the function of these clean and unclean laws was to separate Israel from the nations. So think about it in, in, in terms of, um, we're going to get here in a second. I don't want to jump ahead of myself too much, but... <clears throat> You have things that are holy within Israel. Then you have things that are common but clean, right? And then you have things that are unclean. The nations, they lived out here. 
in this unclean category, right? Israel, by default, by being set apart as God's people, they, they by default are clean. So if you do nothing all day, you don't, you know, if you remain neutral, you don't touch any of the things you're not supposed to, you would be clean because they were already set apart from the unclean. They were cleansed when they were brought into Israel. And the nations were seen as unclean. And one of the markers, or the markers between Israel and the nations were the things that they would eat, the clean and the unclean. So they were unclean, therefore they, they associated with unclean things. Israel was clean, therefore they associated with clean things. Do you have a question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, there's no, there's no instructions on the clean and unclean until we get to Leviticus. Um, and so, so I think that it's a, <clears throat> there's nothing inherent in the animals that make them clean and unclean. God, God puts these, these categories in there kind of as a teaching mechanism to teach Israel about himself and their relation to him. Yes, yes, um, yes. So the, the question was, did, when God made them, by design, were they unclean and clean? I would say no, but, but in order to teach Israel about sin and sin's pollution and it entering into God's presence, God designates certain things as unclean and clean in order as a teaching mechanism for Israel. That, that's why, by the way, when we talk about the distinction between Israel and the Israel and, and the nations, or God's people in the nations, um, uh, when, when there's no longer those barriers after Christ's death and resurrection, what's the first thing to go? The, the distinction between what is clean and unclean as far as what we eat, right? And, and so the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is, is, a, is a people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't, yeah, exactly, yeah, death, death and sickness and all these things that introduced sin's pollution, yeah, they wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, before sin's pollution, then you don't. You don't have any of these categories that are there once after it comes. And I think there's probably, um, it's hard to say with any, with any certainty, but I think they were probably not eating snakes and things like that before anyway, right? Um, before the, the laws here. I think there was a pattern of what is clean and what is unclean, but, I, but there wasn't explicit until Leviticus comes and, and gives the instructions. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, uh, so the question, the question is, what, what's the view of Israel after Christ's death and resurrection in, in, in terms of what is clean and unclean? Um, I think the Paul uh, 
was a Jew, but I don't think he, he, didn't, he didn't feel bound by the Jewish laws um, because Christ came and fulfilled them and, and did away with the barrier between Jew and Gentile that made one clean and unclean. Therefore, all people are people, and God's people are the ones that are sanctified and clean and set apart for him. So the laws that he, they kept doing as Jews, they didn't, they didn't have any significance at that point because the, the fulfillment of those laws had already come. So they were still living out this, this, these laws, but the significance that they held in the Old Testament, the fullness had come in Christ. Therefore, what they pointed to had already been fulfilled, and so they, weren't, they, didn't, have any, they didn't have the same power um, that they, or the same teaching ability or power that they had in the Old Testament, if that makes sense. So they could still do them. There's nothing wrong with doing the, like the, the Jews doing the law. Paul submitted to, to the law when he, was st- when, when he was ministering to Jews. But he realized that eating clean things or unclean things, it didn't matter if he had bacon-wrapped shrimp or not, in other words. He was still in the same category. So they didn't hold the same power, but the Jews definitely thought they did, thought it did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, you shall be holy. Yeah, and then, and then the, the unclean and cleanness here is a metaphor for that holiness, but then we're gonna talk more about holiness next week, um, holiness proper, that whole category of what is holy. And how does, because God desired not for Israel just to be clean, right? God, God wants them to be a holy nation. So he has to, actually wants them to move from the category of clean to, to holy. How does that happen? That's next week. So I'm gonna let Caleb teach on that. All right, so Caleb, tossing it up to you. Okay, let's keep moving. Um, let's look at what's clean and unclean in the cultic system. Cultic, remember, don't get around, don't, don't start thinking, I'm talking about, you know, we're in a cult. Um, the word cult means worship. So the cultic system, the, the, the religious system, worship system here. So in terms of the cosmos or the universe, the way that it's ordered, you have the unclean, that's the Gentiles. You have Israel, that's clean. You have the priests that are holy, um, and then in the cultic world, so remember, the tabernacle is, is, a, is a microcosm, a smaller representation of the cosmos in general. Remember? The, the, you know, we talked about this in relation to the mountain of God and, and, and the Garden of Eden and all, and all of that. We're going to revisit those themes in a second. But if you think about the, the tabernacle as a small representation of the universe, the cosmos in general, then you have... Um, animals that represent these things as well. You have the unclean, the clean, and the sacrificial. And then you have the space. So the space of the tabernacle, you have the wilderness, and then you have, which is outside of the camp. So they have the wilderness that's outside of the camp, beyond the borders of, of where Israel would stay. Then you have the camp, and then you have the tabernacle. So you have that three-tier system there. Um, remember when we went back to, to Genesis, and we talked about the Garden of Eden, and then you had just right outside of Eden at the gate, and then you had further east, right? And the further east you went, that's the further into the, 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 further into the wilderness that you would go, further away from the mountain of God that was in Eden. That makes sense? The tabernacle is the same kind of picture there. And last week, we, um, and, and two weeks ago, the tabernacle is, um, is this new mountain of God that represents his presence among his people. And so there was this three-tiered, um, organization of the cultic cosmos as well. So, so we should see clean and uncleanness in terms of scale regarding what can approach God. 
the two basic categories being holy and common. Holy is fit to enter into God's presence. That which is common must be sanctified or set apart unto God or purified in order to enter into God's presence. But nothing that is unclean can enter into God's presence. That's the big um, lesson here. Okay. Nadab and Abihu introduces this whole idea of polluting God's, God's house. So then uh, God gives instructions on how to keep God's house clean. And then this whole section kind of culminates or ends with the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. So let's go to chapter 16. And we're not, it's a long passage, so we're not going to work through every single word. We're gonna, I'm going to read a summary for you guys in a second that Morales provides in his book. I couldn't do it better than him, so I'm not going to try and reinvent the wheel. Um, but remember that the Day of Atonement is the center of the Pentateuch. Leviticus, the center of the central book, the Day of Atonement central within the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement was the center of Israel's calendar. They, they, this was the day um, where God would cleanse his people and provide um, atonement for all of the people of Israel once a year, kind of resetting the tabernacle um, worship rituals. Let's read the summary of the day, um, the day's ritual. I think you guys have this on your sheet. Am I right? Okay, let's read it together. Well, I'll read it and you guys can listen and follow along. So the high priest would bathe and put on simple the holy linen clothes to sacrifice both the purification offerings first, purging the inner sanctum, the the, the tent of meeting, and the altar with blood. So um, before, so involved in the, the Day of Atonement, there were two, um, two purification offerings and then two burnt offerings that were offered. Um, one for Abraham and his house and then one for Israel as a whole, okay? So those are the categories that he has here. And then obviously there's the scapegoat as well. So the central focus of the ceremony, the height of its tension and drama, was the high priest's entrance into the Holy of Holies. It was the only time in the year that he could do this. Having placed within the Holy of Holies a censer full of burning coals and much finely ground sweet incense to create a cloud, screening his eyes from God's glory, which reminds us of what? The cloud on the mountain of God, uh, that's Moses, right? That's Moses um, entering the cloud and his glory being screened from him. The high priest would sprinkle the bull's blood from his own purification offering upon the atonement lid of the ark eastward and then seven times before it. After casting lots to designate which goat would be sacrificed as Israel's purification offering and which would serve to carry Israel's sins, um, to carry away Israel's sins, he would offer the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and complete the inner sanctum's purgation with its blood. Purgation is just the idea of cleansing. A similar process was carried out in the holy place, probably applying blood to the incense altar and then seven times before it. Finally, the high priest would purge the altar of ascension offerings by uh, daubing its horns with, a mixed, with the mixed bloods of the bull and goat and then sprinkle the altar seven times to re-consecrate it. After purging the inner and outer sanctums and the altar, the high priest would bring the live goat and press both hands upon its head, confessing all of, its, all of Israel's wickedness or guilt, transgressions, and sins, so as to transfer Israel's culpability entirely upon the goat which would then be led out to the wilderness by the appointed man. The high priest would then bathe again, put on his ornate 
uh, garments to offer up both, the ascension, both of the ascension offerings, adding, finally, the fat from the purification offerings. The Day of Atonement includes, then, three main rites that are interwoven as one ceremony. An entrance rite, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, um, a cleansing rite of the tabernacle cultists, and an, an elimination rite of the people's sins into the wilderness. It's a pretty good summary there of what's going on. If you just read through Leviticus 16, you'll get all of those points. Okay, so what's going on in the Day of Atonement? Let's talk through this real briefly. First is a cleansing of God's house. So remember that, remember when we talked about the, the purification offerings and the big thing that's going on there is the spilling of the blood and then the, the sprinkling of the blood on the altar. This happens in the Holy of Holies and it's, and it's, and it's this, this picture of being cleansed. So the, the Holy of Holies is, be, is being cleansed by the lifeblood of these animals. Um, Leviticus 16, 14, it's referenced in the summary, calls for an eastward sprinkling, causing the high priest to stand to the west. So from the atonement laid before the ark, the high priest would continue the continue to the altar in the courtyard further east. So the, so the high priest would start to the, to the west and work through to the east, cleansing the tabernacle, right? And remember the, the, the imagery of east and west, west and east, right? I've been using this as west um, because I'm facing you, and if a map is in front of me, this is, this is west, Okay. So the movement from west to east with the cleansing of blood signifies a reversal of movement of Israel's uncleanness through the rest of the year. So Israel's sin or Israel's uncleanness would, was um, presumably uh, pervading even the tabernacle, and therefore there needed to be this purging of pushing sin or pushing um, sin's pollution back away from the tabernacle. And so throughout the year, uncleanness, uncleanness, uncleanness is encroaching on God's space, and the Day of Atonement, it's pushed all the way back. It's cleansed all the way back down the mountain. The Day of Atonement then was not just for the forgiveness of sins, but for the cleansing of the people of Israel and the tabernacle itself from uncleanness. This was done so that God would continue to dwell amongst his people. So they would do this every year to ensure that God's dwelling would, would remain amongst his people because he wouldn't dwell amongst the unclean people in an unclean house. Remember that the tabernacle was not an end in itself. It was a microcosm, a small representative of a bigger picture, bigger, bigger cosmic reality in the universe. So if the Holy of Holies is symbolic of God's true heavenly abode, his house, and the tabernacle is a symbol of God's cosmic house, the Day of Atonement um, points us backwards and forwards to the cleansing of God's house. So it points us backwards in the Garden of Eden, and then Fast forward a little bit to when um, after Cain and there's the, all, of, all of humanity is sinful, and what does God do? He purges his house through the flood. It's a big cleansing. It's a big judgment day. Now, in the future, everything's moving forward to when God makes his house again, his dwelling place again on earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. What needs to happen before God can make his dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth? He needs to cleanse the world again. He needs, there's the Day of Judgment. So the Day of Atonement was, a, was thematically a picture of looking back to when God cleansed, his, cleansed the earth and looking forward when God would cleanse the earth finally. Here's a quote here from Morales from the book. The questions that surfaced naturally and urgently in Leviticus in relation to the tabernacle as God's house had already surfaced in relation to the Garden of Eden narrative. What can be done is all lost. The answer provided in Leviticus to the Day of Atonement on the stage of the cultic drama, therefore, provides the answer for the cosmos as, house of, as the house of God as well. There must be a Day of Atonement for the cosmos. 
And ultimately, this annual purgation reiterates the need for a full and final cleansing, one that cannot be threatened or undone for the covenant promise of humanity's communion and fellowship with God to be realized. So the tabernacle wasn't an end in itself. It pointed forward and up. You guys with me? Approaching the divine presence. So the movement of Leviticus is one of deepening intimacy with God. Whereas Nadab and Abihu failed to enter into God's presence, Aaron was able to penetrate the Holy of Holies in the Day of Atonement. Um, And so we have this theme of approaching the divine presence. In all of this, we have a re-entering of Aaron into the Eden, re-entering Eden in the cultic mountain of God. So when I say cultic, remember, worship, mountain of, worship, ritual, um, mountain of God. The tabernacle represents the mountain of God. The holy of holies, the garden of Eden at the top of the mountain. Who's allowed to enter? The high priest, Aaron. Aaron, if we, if we relate the tabernacle back to the, to the garden of Eden, Aaron would represent who? Adam. Adam, or Aaron, is this second Adam figure re-entering the Garden of Eden on the Day of Atonement. Um, So the tabernacle, then, is the mountain of God, a picture of Eden where humanity was created to enjoy Sabbath day rest with God. The high priest is the new Adam figure, a second Adam, the high priest, um, and he's the only character called And this is interesting. He's the only character in the Pentateuch called Messiah. And what is the Messiah's job? The Messiah's job was to go back into, was to enter into the Holy of Holies and provide atonement for his people and regain access to um, to God. So who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Here then, at the heart of the Pentateuch, we find an answer to the question, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? The one able to ascend is the Adam-like high priest with blood on the Day of Atonement. That's what, that's what it's driving at here. Who shall ascend? It's this Adam-like figure with blood on the Day of Atonement. There's another picture there that kind of um, uh, depicts what, what I was just describing um, in the, uh, the comparison between the tabernacle and um, the, the Garden of Eden and the Mount of God. Okay, real briefly, because we're running out of time. We actually are out of time, but I'm still going to finish. One last thing. With all this going on and this drama that's going on in the Day of Atonement, the expulsion rite, the, 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 the scapegoat rite, expulsion is taken away. Um, uh, so what's going on here? We know that, that, that Aaron would push his, put his hands on the goat and that he would pronounce the sins of Israel. And what that was doing was transferring the culpability of Israel's, Israel to the goat. And then what, the, what did the goat do? He was walked out into the wilderness by someone who was designated to do this. Walk him out into the wilderness away from God's presence. So a couple of notes here. First, the scapegoat should be viewed in conjunction with the goat that's sacrificed. The scapegoat should be viewed in conjunction with the goat that's sacrificed. Last week, remember how we talked about how the hand-leaning rite, when you put your hands on the animal that was sacrificed, was not transferring sin because sin can't enter into God's presence. 
It was, it was identifying this, the, the worshiper with the animal so that everything that happened to the animal was vicariously, that the worshiper was experiencing vicariously. Entering into God's presence, being transformed, ascending into God's, God's house, right? Two goats were picked, and they were, they, were, they were supposed to be picked so that they would be similar in appearance. Similar in appearance. Um, the instructions about these goats in chapter 16 speak of it as a single purification offering. So there's the sacrifice and the expulsion of the goat, and we're supposed to see this as one offering. Um, and so it's best to view the scapegoat and the goat that's sacrificed as one animal accomplishing two things. This is where you get the idea of double imputation of Christ, his active and his passive obedience, which we're going to get to um, in a couple weeks. Second, the expulsion of the scapegoat could be, should be viewed in terms of the cultic geography. Remember, the mountain of God and what did the, represent, what did the wilderness represent? And represented the furthest reaches away from God's presence. Um, and going all the way back to the first couple weeks, we have the mountain of God, and then we have the waters that the waters of chaos and death that that are that are way down at the base of the mountain. The, the wilderness represents that. So what's the picture here? <clears throat> the goat is sent off with the sins of Israel to the wilderness, the place of death. Sin and death are removed from creation. The scapegoat descends the mountain as far away from the presence of God as possible while the sacrificial goat enters the Holy of Holies via his lifeblood to make atonement for sin. So conclusion. Israel now has instructions on how to remain clean uh, and through the Day of Atonement, the tabernacle and the people are cleansed finally. But it is not enough to just be clean. In order to live with God, Israel must be holy. And that's what the rest of Leviticus is about. That's what Caleb's going to cover next week. Okay. Any quick questions? You can come to me after as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. And we thank you that even though you are holy, you invite us into your presence that you have made a way for us to meet with you. You have made a way for us to approach your throne through Christ. You have made a way for us to live with you forever because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, who is our sacrificial lamb and scapegoat, who bore our sins and took them away from your presence, rose victoriously from the grave, and enters into your heavenly holy of holies with his own blood, We thank you for the gospel, and we thank you for the gospel preached beforehand in Leviticus, and pray that you'd help us to have a rich view of your communication to us throughout the Old Testament, um, and that we would, um, that it would increase our worship for what you've done for a sinful people like us. I pray that today that you would give, um, give us grace as we worship together. I pray that you would um, help Mark as he preaches to preach with the power of the Holy Spirit behind him as he interprets the word and as he delivers it to us, that we would have willing and receptive ears and hearts, that you would transform us by your spirit through your word, that we would be encouragements to one another and that we would um, honor you in our singing and in everything that we do today.
on your on on the, the Lord's day. And I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.